But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back. I know I should probably stop saying welcome back and actually contribute to more regular episodes. But you know, that probably wouldn't be as fun. I'd like to keep you on your toes. I would like to uh, say I'll do more regular episodes, but we both know that'd be a lie. So I'd rather you just be pleasantly surprised whenever I decide to get off my arse and record one. Um, today's chat is actually a really cool conversation and one I've been trying to have for a long time and trying to find the right person to do. Um, and I found that in Dr. Camille Short, who is a behavioral scientist at the University of Melbourne, doing some really cool research looking at um, e-health and technology as it relates to behavior change in uh, individuals with cancer and more specifically prostate cancer. But what I loved about Camille's work is that uh, we presented together at a conference a few months back now and she gave one of the, the best overviews I've seen of the, the field of behavior change and, and the theories behind it because if you've studied this space and if you've been to uh, lectures in this space it can get um, intensely boring and really heavy laden in um, theories and things like that and Camille does a great job of of kind of giving you a blend of theory and application and she does a wonderful job of doing that in this chat and um, I'm not going to give too much of an intro, she does a great job of giving an intro to herself and an overview of the episode but other than that, I promise, my fingers may or not, may not be crossed, that I will return to regular programming as soon as life calms down. Other than that, hope you enjoy the show, chat soon. Alright Camille, so I really appreciate your time and in, in jumping on the call and chatting to us, I know you've been extremely busy the last few months and bouncing back around and forth from conferences um but as i said to you offline i i i've been looking for someone to do a talk like this or do a conversation like this for a long time and we presented together um at a conference recently and i have i have not seen someone present the the area of behavior change as well as you did um, and i was fascinated by it and just really thought you'd be a great addition and a, and a great person to chat to not only from your um, perspective on behavior change theory, but also your expertise in applying these principles or theories in our field of exercise oncology. Um, so before we jump into our specific conversation, why don't you give people a little bit of a background about who you are and what you're up to? Yeah, so I'm Camille Short. I'm a senior research fellow at the University of Melbourne. And I have a unique position partly in the School of Psychological Sciences and partly in Health Sciences, uh, where I sit with the physiotherapy department. Um, so I guess I'm kind of uniquely placed to be able to grab those different perspectives um, and sort of merge them through a psychological lens. So when you're mom says uh what are you studying or what are you researching and you say behavior change and she says what's that give, give me give me the explanation yeah mostly when people ask me what i'm studying i take a big deep breath <laughs> <laughs> so i'm interested in studying behavior change really has two components and one of them is more about doing research to try and understand behavior and understanding behavior is really about looking at what other things that influence behavior, both good and bad. And then the other aspect of um, being a behavioral scientist is studying strategies that are targeted at uh, the things that influence behavior. So we're really studying the things that influence behavior um, and sometimes behavior itself. So when you talk about things that influence behavior, good and bad, um, yeah. elaborate on those. So I guess a lot of people think of that as, say, barriers, but it really goes far beyond barriers. Um, my training is in 
uh, both psychology and public health. So when I talk about things that influence behaviour, I am I do a lot of research on, at the individual level. Um, and by individual level, I mean kind of all of the psychology that makes us who we are. Um, but I also have a very strong understanding of social and environmental things that influence our behaviour as well. And so when we're doing individual work, we really need to be able to, we might not be able to influence them in an individually focused program, but you really do need to be able to still deliver that in that context. So that's things, for example, like access to services and the level of social support you have. So I study across all the way through to people's motivation through to what access people have. I think it's really cool to have that kind of broader perspective because I think you're right when we when we speak about behavior change it does get very narrow in terms of um, barriers and facilitators to to actually try and and do some sort of change without understanding access to resources and the kind of bigger picture that ultimately filter back down to to individual decisions. Yeah, exactly. And you know, a lot of the psychological um theories that are designed to explain behavior you know at best they explain about 40 percent of our behavior so there are you know part of that's measurement error we can't measure everything uh about that individual person but part of it's because there are other factors that are outside of that person and that's everybody it's not just people with lower resources it it can be the most privileged people in society still have environmental and social factors that impact on their behavior i really like that you've you've kind of nailed that up front because uh you know when you get into the behavior change world and people are bickering about which theory is better yeah like even when you combine different theories and elements of those they're still not doing a great job of giving us a a a complete picture of what influences and decisions on behavior it's actually partly, I said before that when people ask me what I do, I often have a big sigh. And that, that's not because I'm not really passionate um, about what I do, but it's actually to label yourself a behaviour change expert is uh, really brave because it's an incredibly hard thing to actually um, change someone's behaviour. And there's a difference between like shifting behaviour, going from nothing to something. So I would call that, say, adoption in an exercise sense. But then trying to get people to actually maintain that behaviour is a whole new challenge. Um, And so if you think about smoking, for example, um, as well as exercise, you might get a lot of quit attempts. You might get a lot of news resolutions to, to pick up exercise. But actually being successful with that and continuing to do it is um, a whole nother different challenge as well. So it's just to say it's actually really hard to <laughs> understand behaviour and influence it. Yeah, I think um, it's probably, we'll kind of come full circle to talk about that when we talk about the limitations of the research in behaviour change as a, as a kind of a tries to translate to a real world setting. But I think it's worth kind of touching on a couple of them. And, and I think you did a really good job at the conference of highlighting Self-efficacy, I think primarily because it kind of um, is pervasive across theories and Mm -hmm. it's a pretty predominant um, kind of theory in in our understanding of of behavior change. So let's chat a little bit about that and and how it applies to what we're doing. Yeah, okay. Um, Well, it's sort of worth probably thinking about the history of, uh, I guess, the movement around these sorts of things. And originally, um, there's a very, like... uh, conditioning focus view of what causes our behavior and that it was essentially like a stimulus response sort of thing. We moved away from that in the sort of um, Bandura era where it became much more about social and cognitive factors. And that's where I think self-efficacy really um, sort of evolved. And it is consistently one of the major things that has been found to influence our behavior. And so for people who don't know what I mean by self-efficacy, it's actually just a um, fancy way of saying confidence. So you can get different types of self-efficacy, but it's essentially confidence to overcome barriers, to do different tasks. And um, the reason it's so predictive is that it has a flow-on effect to all these other psychological things that also contribute to our behaviour. So you can imagine that if you're someone who feels quite confident to do an activity, 
that you're likely to probably have um, more positive attitudes. And the most important thing is you're more likely to actually form an intention to do it in the first place. And that's because we tend to avoid things that we don't feel that confident about. So having high self-efficacy leads you to have an intention. And so a lot of those social cognitive models have a lot of overlap. So theory plan behavior is another one. It's very strongly related to social cognitive theory, um, a high amount of overlap. It also suggests that your perceived behavioral control, which is similar to self-efficacy, impacts on your behavior through intentions. And these models have become very um, popular and it's partly because they explain something that the other models weren't, but it's also really intuitive for a health professional to say, well, if I change your attitudes, if I give you education, it should change your behavior. And if I change your confidence and your skills, then that should change your behavior. So it's really intuitive stuff for health professionals to, to give them something to work on. However, it was sort of a no ignore, and um, this is work mostly by uh, colleagues of mine that have been showing um, this intention behavior gap for quite a long time now so that all these interventions that are based on these things actually have can be quite successful at changing people's intentions but that really large changes in intentions are actually only causing quite modest changes in behavior and that's what we call the intention behavior gap let's expand on that because i think um it's really important in looking at people who who try to change and um, behavior we measure self-efficacy, we measure your, your uh, confidence in your ability to do specific tasks or overcome barriers, and then the ability to self-regulate yourself. And then we say, um, this resulted in an increase in tension, and then we just kind of arbitrarily say, intentions associated with activity down the line. Um, and there's kind of a shortage of people who really kind of consistently and, and follow that kind of longitudinally. Um, so, so elaborate on that intention behavior gap and, and kind of what we're trying to do to, to, I suppose, target that? So I think there's a fair portion of people who are uh, blatantly ignoring it. Um, <laughs> so there, there are, we do tend to, um, I guess, skipping ahead, one of the things that we do badly is continue to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. Um, and I, I have been guilty of that myself, but the field more broadly who, who are sort of concerned with this there are a couple of things to know about. I guess that there's um, this popularity emerging around dual process theories. You know, the language around the, some of these things, you, you kind of need a, a psychology degree to, to get your head around it. But it basically, the, the central premise is, is that there are two processes that actually sort of drive our behavior. And one is much more automatic um, and the other one is much more deliberative. And so a lot of the social cognitive um, models of behavior are really trying to change our behavior through those deliberative processes. So it's getting you to focus on your goals. It's getting you to um, keep focusing, self-regulate. But the analogy is that it's a little bit like a horse and a jockey and the deliberative processes are the jockey. And if the horse sort of has a mind of its own or has other in uh, its own intentions, then it's going to be this constant struggle and you're going to eventually, that's going to make you relapse. And so what I mean by automatic processes are things like your implicit um, attitudes. So even though you might intellectually know that you want to exercise, that you think it's really beneficial, that it might help you recover from cancer, you might actually just have all these automatic associations like exercise is hard, it's yuck, it's <laughs> for other sorts of people, you know, like have all these associations that you've built up and learned all over time. And what's going to happen is that when you go to carry out your intentions, those associations that you hold actually bias you towards avoiding activity. And so they've done all this research to show that the extent of those associations, and we can measure them in the lab, predict your behavior sometimes above your conscious intentions. So those implicit associations are one type of automatic process that drives our behavior, but there's also habits and habits are a huge one. So then a habit's not just doing a behavior frequently. It is really an, a learned association with a specific cue. So the more that you repeat something in response to a specific cue, the more likely you are to build a habit. So if you think about brushing your teeth, you don't have to be motivated to brush your teeth. 
Um, you don't have to have an intention to brush your teeth. It's just something that you now go on and do. And there's this some sense that habits are sort of like your default behaviours. And so they ha can have a really strong um, impact on whether or not you carry out your intentions, especially because intentions aren't necessarily stable constructs, right? They can waver throughout the day. And so all these other feelings that we have that we're not really accounting for can be impacting our behaviour. So that's a long way of saying one of the areas to try and um, impact the intention behaviour gap is just recognising these more automatic influences on behaviour um, and trying to come up with strategies to change those. And there's some really exciting, innovative stuff that's been happening, um, especially in the digital health space in that area. Yeah, that's a perfect kind of next step. My question was going to be almost separately with implicit bias and habits. How much and what can we do to work? And a kind of implicit bias is probably a, a, a more challenging one. You know, what can we do to, to kind of target these or work towards moving through them? I think the implicit biases is hard um, without people. Uh, well, I guess it depends whether people are. If you're enrolled in a program and you can be, you can understand that there are these things, you know, that you might not be that aware of that are impacting your behaviour. Then people might be willing to engage in tools to sort of condition uh, more positive associations. So one of the um, programs I'm working on, um, led by Amanda Reba is actually like a mobile phone game that is designed to kind of condition more positive associations with physical activity. I've actually done a trial to and shown that we can actually change where people sit, where we can change people's implicit associations and make them more positive using like essentially brain training games, but it's just constantly positively reinforcing physical activity stimuli with like more like happy sounds happy words and it does have this short effect which is sort of unbelievable but if you think about it that's exactly how advertising works it's trying to strengthen your associations with the product and good and it does drive our buying intentions the trouble is is that exercise behavior is a lot more complicated than you know going to the shop which you're going to do anyway and buying something of a type that you're going to buy anyway so we, we can learn from that a little bit, but it's a, lot, it's a lot harder to use those techniques. But by having them in a smartphone app so that if you were, that you could potentially keep dosing yourself with, like you would be being saturated with advertising. I think habit formation is probably something that is more relevant for people who are running exercise programs um, because it's really about the consistency in which you do the behaviour um, that impacts on whether or not it's likely to become a habit. And so I think program deliverers could set people up much more than they probably already do to make sure that, that they're not just exercising in that acute rehab period, but it's more likely to go on um, and become more automatic. And then people don't have to be motivated. It's just something that they're going to just do because they've conditioned themselves to do it. So one of, one of the things that I'm really interested in this space, uh, you know, if you look at kind of the quote unquote uh, traditional models of behavior change, it's kind of um, structured interventions with specific um, topics of conversation each week as you're going through a program. So you're talking about goal setting, self-regulating, things like that. And I think it's a really nice approach on kind of that average level to, to look at mean changes in behavior but I think there could be a movement towards more of that individual's individualized approach and in, in kind of starting to profile people, maybe based on, on, on looking at their, you know, what is kind of influencing their behavior most is, is it habits, is it self-efficacy, things like that. And then having more specific tailored interventions directed at that. That's going to be a really difficult way to, to research this space, but I think you're right in, and if you can understand that individual variability, we can get more specific with a, with a targeted approach. And actually, I think there is a lot of data that could be used to gain insights into this. So a lot of these constructs are often assessed in the sorts of work that we do. Um, and one of the projects I've really been wanting to do is um, take some of the baseline data I have on some of these factors and then look how they cluster together. 
because a lot of my work does take that tailoring approach. So that um, technique we called computer tailoring, we essentially assess people and then we give them tailored feedback based on their responses. But it's, you know, it can be infinitely complicated. So you really need some guidance around how these things cluster together um, to make them more, as relevant as possible because relevance is a really important um, factor that impacts on how people process information. You're much more likely to read something and think about it more deeply if you think it's personally relevant to you. So um, if you happen to know that people with high self-confidence, if they're, say there are nine unique clusters of how different variables come together, you could essentially just make nine programs instead of 9,000 by thinking of every possible permutation. Which is probably why people don't do it. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, some of the programs I've created with my collaborators have, you know, a thousand different permutations of messages because we're trying, we're not using data necessarily to look at how things naturally group together and then try and attack it that way. We're looking at it from... These are the things that we know that matter. How could they possibly interact and then designing messages around it? Yeah. And that in itself is such a a headache as well, because, you know, you're kind of talking about these if and decisions and responses in accordance with them. And then if we're talking about that being population specific or or cancer subtype specific, then you're kind of go, how do we expand this out? And um, it's really commendable work that you're trying to work through this, but I imagine there's there's a lot of headaches that's coming with trying to figure out these permutations. Yeah, which is why I've sort of moved um, towards trying to work out what are the most important things to tailor on. Um, so one of my doctoral students, Amy Finlay, just did a small study showing men like generic uh, physical activity messages so men with prostate cancer showing them messages around goal setting and social support and exercise guidelines and then extracted information about what things triggered them in terms of what wasn't relevant what and was able to say okay for this sort of message these are the three variables that would be important to tailor on because you know that say it's important for to take comorbidities into account when you're prescribing exercise but you don't know whether you should also take and you know that self-efficacy is important but you don't know whether it's important for every single thing that you're going to have in your intervention because they're really complex beasts with lots of different things that you're throwing at people at the same time so in in regards to that do you kind of fall in line with that idea of of specifically looking at target self-efficacy it's important to try and find that challenge of of something that is is challenging enough and kind of induces some sort of pleasurable experience but not too much to where you're actually kind of fostering negative feelings towards the activity in that initial kind of few bouts of exercise yeah so i think that speaks to one of the things i talked about in my um, presentation that you mentioned before was the role of effect which um in psychology terms is you can think of as emotions um, and that does sort of come under that more like less reflective sort of process it's something like an emotion that sort of guides our behavior and there's definitely an interaction and it's, it's another important thing that we could take account of better in exercise programs so there is fairly good evidence that enjoyment you know is a determinant of maintaining changes in exercise and so if you're delivering a program ideally you want to increase confidence and have it's almost they really come together if you're and there's probably personality factors as well but mostly people's enjoyment and this is from flow theory people's enjoyment is highest when there is a good mix between their skills and the challenge so like you don't have any satisfaction from nailing a challenge that was too easy but there is this thing where if it's really painful and it's like pushing you just that bit too much, you're not going to increase your confidence necessarily, or you might increase your confidence, but you're not going to have enjoyed it. So there's a sweet spot that's going to be different for everybody because it will be related to people's fitness levels. 
So what do you think about, um, you know, the work that you're doing with kind of um, e-health and technology in trying to add to this gap or, or at least kind of give us some more things to think about in the space? Well, I'm trying to do a lot of things. One of the things I think is just that we really need to work together. So, um, I mean, the, the behavior change programs haven't been as effective at producing functional outcomes. And so I think that speaks to the importance of having tailored exercise prescription. Um, in terms of technology, I think it also speaks to the importance of having someone on the other side. So some of my early work with women with breast cancer, probably about a third of people um, got by and really got benefit from just having the behavior change advice there that helped them be motivated and understand how to self-regulate. And they went on to change their behavior. But there are a lot of people, you know, with lymphedema, with neuropathy, um, age-related issues. It's an older population, so you have a lot of osteoarthritis and things like that that really needed information about how to exercise within their physical limitations. So one of the things I'm actually doing as a behavioural scientist is making sure that I'm integrating tailored exercise prescription and working collaboratively to do that. However, the behavioural science is really important because a lot of the movement around exercise medicine, you know, it, see, it sees exercise as a stimulus and that there's an optimal stimulus to have. And um, there actually can be opposing philosophies around, you know, the theories around motivation and trying to engage people and being person-centred versus I, I think what I'm saying is the idea that people will do something because it is good for them and it is the best thing they can possibly do is wrong for too big of a subgroup of people yeah and i think we i i put myself strongly in that camp and that we um we can get too caught up in what you kind of uh described as the pursuit of optimal and we need to step back and kind of say well optimal for what because to to put someone through an intervention that's quote-unquote optimal to stimulate something like muscle mass and put on sizable or, or significant amounts of, of lean tissue is going to be brutal. You know, if you're talking about like at the, at the kind of upper limit of that, that's ne not necessarily going to be optimal for behavior change and for, for the independent adoption and maintenance of activity. So there's probably a sweet spot there where we can come together and, and work towards what you're kind of describing as that, that kind of mix between something that's challenging enough um, to, to be stimulating but not so much that it's going to put you off the activity itself. Yeah, and I honestly think it depends on what the research purpose is. If the purpose is to look at the impact of different types of exercises and doses on health outcomes, then you're going to have people in the trial who are willing to do it. And it's really important because it gives context for people who are wanting to give programs what the benefits of different programming is going to be physiologically. But how you go about disseminating it to the community and, and getting the best buy-in is almost a different question. Mm -hmm. And you just know that not everybody is going to want to do what the optimum thing would be. And so the question could be, how do we get people to do that as much of it as possible? But there is this real um, tension there between wanting to be person-centred and you us having our own goals for it and I've learned very on very early on that going in with my own goals for what I want them to do usually ends fairly badly <laughs> because engagement is really dictated by their goals and if there's a mismatch then you're sort of going to be in trouble you have to somehow make them line up yeah and I think you kind of alluded to it earlier but finding ways to make it relevant to them is massive particularly if you're going through treatment if you're trying to quote unquote convince someone who's receiving extensive treatment for for their cancer and they identify as a non-exerciser they don't typically enjoy it and you're saying you need to do this because of x and it's good physiologically physiologically they're gonna go okay well i still don't really want to do it <laughs> so finding ways through through conversation engagement with them that you can identify ways to make it relevant to them, that they get some value out of it and have um, expectations of what they can get from it. Yeah. And I think like having it as a part of routine care will make a difference. I think people are more likely, well, there's evidence that says, you know, if you, if it's encouraged by your doctor 
you're more likely to um, consider doing it and partake in it. But the effect is actually not that large. Mm. So that we, we really need to approach it from multiple levels, have doctors involved, have programs that are appealing, and then really, you know, let people in that camp surprise themselves by actually finding it enjoyable, not confirming everything that they, mm. I guess, were afraid of in the, in the beginning. Yeah, and it, it's also challenging in, um, I suppose, trying to apply the theories blanket across people with different, as you said, different comorbidities, different physical status, um, you know, even different kind of body composition profiles. If you're trying to, to look at weight management, um, that in itself is a whole different beast in, in terms of how much weight they lose initially and, and kind of the value they perceive in that, that will be dictated in their long-term behavior versus someone we're trying to just kind of keep lean tissue on or, or target other kind of comorbidities or, or toxicities from treatment. There's not going to be this blanket statement that say everyone should do this type of intervention. It's really kind of coming back to that. Yeah. And I guess the new ESSA guidelines really acknowledge that. And, and it's definitely not a blanket recommendation. It's about thinking about what that person's main risk factors are, what's the thing that's going to cause them the most damage, and alongside that, what their own goals are. And I think that's a really positive step forward because it means that um, you can give the exercise prescription that's much more in line with what it is that they are really wanting to work on. So what is the kind of... Because we, we do a good job of getting down the, the rabbit hole of behaviour change theories and specifics in that you know, when you're talking to health professionals, like what is your, if I was to say to you, what's your ideal behavior change intervention? What, what would you, what would that look like for you? Good question. Um, I have a bit of a cop-out answer for you. So the best practice in my opinion for anybody is that remember when I said I do two things and one is trying to understand the behavior and the other one is thinking about what strategies would work to change that behavior. That is the process that people need to go through to build a good behavior change intervention. Mm. And so the theory is useful in that it helps you think about things that you might not have considered, but basically every process, what you should do is think about for your particular population group that you're working with, what are the really what are the main things that actually influence them taking up exercise in the first place and then them sticking to it and then you essentially map the strategies to each one of those things and that is what when people say they have done a theory based intervention that is really the process in which they at least should be saying that that's what they have done because then what you go and do is that you go and then you can measure those things that you think are the things that they're supposed to be influencing it and you can see whether they change over time. And if they don't, you know that your strategies that you mapped against those things weren't effective and you have some sense around what it is that made your intervention work or not work. In, in kind of, again, taking that out of big picture, one of the easier criticisms of the field of behavior change is that it doesn't work and it's not effective in the real world and we're talking about this idea that there are things outside of um behavior change series behavior change series explaining well 30 to 40 percent of behavior mm-hmm. do you think by increasing our own and our clients awareness of the other things that can influence behavior it can potentially facilitate buy-in or or, or outcomes I do. I actually, um, I have this concerning story, um, for my PhD, I did a little bit of, um, trying to address this with people to think about their environment, get them to order their environment. And one of my participants in my study actually told me that she had, uh, quit her job and moved state based on, uh, the realization that the environment was unhealthy. And I, <laughs> I felt this like a massive sense of responsibility and hoped that um, that evidence was as strong as I had, you know, hoped it was. Um, but that there is evidence saying physical activity that um, living closer to green spaces, uh, having access to public transport, all those things impact on our behavior. But actually 
it's not to the when you measure it and account for it in the same way it's still quite small proportion so it's not we, we still probably don't know all of the things but i mean partner or friend or close ally support is something that you know we know has quite a big impact as well and that is in some behavior change theories but not all and our ability to change it though um can be limited depending on the type of exercise program that we're having so we really need to think about what are the things if we can't change it do we need to raise awareness in the people that we're trying to help for the sorts of other things that might be in their way mm. A big part of it is being mindful ourselves. So something like $30 for an exercise program, if there's a gap, might actually be prohibitive to some people, even though it seems like not very much money to us, especially in the context of someone who's already having to pay for parking at the hospital or cancer therapies out of pocket. And you're kind of moving into this um, metastatic space with prostate cancer. Um, Have you started to see maybe some differences or some unique behavioral challenges with that population, maybe around the exercise prescription or, or kind of things there that um, make, make working with that population unique. Yeah, there are a couple of things. Um, understandably, I think there's a little bit of, there's more gatekeeping because there's a higher risk um, of injury. Um, and, you know, there are still people who, aren't convinced of the safety of exercise um, clinically despite despite the research evidence. So that's one thing. Um, one of the biggest challenges I've found is actually this, um, like people's normative ideas around exercise or physical activity and because it tends to be an older population, um, even though they would agree that exercise is beneficial, they there's this general sense in the men that I've worked with that they're active enough. They are still actually out working in the shed. They're doing yard work and they really, that they say things like, well, I think for 75, I'm pretty good. (laughs) And there's also the cycle, the kind of psychology behind how you promote exercise and how you make people enthusiastic about it is different in a group of people who have a different, prognosis a lot of the work I've done has been with people who are post-treatment in remission and so that's been a learning curve for me as well Um, but I would just say one thing I think is interesting from a behavior change or a psycho-oncology point of view is this idea of a teachable moment and um, so that's the idea that the cancer experience is going to open you up to make lifestyle changes essentially and um, i believe in it but I don't believe that it goes in the direction that you'd always expect it to and I think we're biased by being health professionals Um, one of the participants I've worked with said to me uh, something along the lines of you know life's short and I don't want to spend the rest of my life sweating on a treadmill I like scrapbooking and that's what I'm going to do that's such a good point and uh it's something that, that we need to consistently reinforce in, in trying to find a balance of primarily the difference between a researcher and advocate, but more importantly, the difference between an advocate and a preacher and putting unnecessary um, guilt or, or kind of um, pressure on people to do this. Even when you look at um, the evidence for improving certain outcomes in, in my field, for example, the, the lean body mass, isn't really that strong during treatment. So exactly what you were kind of saying, this teachable moment can actually be, it's teaching me to go out and enjoy my life. And if you've got someone with an expectancy of five months and they want to go live by the lake, you're not going to say, hey, you tried squatting. <laughs> you, know yeah. I mean? you have to really respect their, their wishes and autonomy. And I think our role is to, to provide information, um, but it cannot be to <laughs> pressure, even coerce people into to doing things that they're not interested in. Yeah, I think we have a real duty of care, especially around guilt. And I know that um, a lot of the messaging around benefits of exercise, there is a real risk of inducing guilt. And I think, you know, even with, you know, the best intentions, especially if around the messaging around preventing cancer even. So obviously people with cancer can still see messages in the community around how, 
lifestyle behaviors can prevent cancer. Um, So there can be a real, you know, sense of their own responsibility for having the disease and then for not doing everything that the research evidence says that they should be doing. And even if that guilt leads people to uptake exercise, there's pretty good evidence that they're less likely to continue on than people who are doing it because they inherently value it and think it's important. Um, So I think trying to be guided by not making people feel guilty is going to be really important to not only be ethical but to be successful in engaging people in exercise. I think it it would be really interesting to look at how that perception of guilt interacts with self-efficacy and the experience from exercise. Um, You know, because I think self-efficacy is really important in the, in the challenging parts of, of exercise participation, whether it's the adoption, initial adoption or kind of moments of relapse. Yeah. Really interesting to look at that intersection between guilt and and self-efficacy during those challenging periods to see if that then does, you're like, oh, I can't do it. Like these are all, everyone's putting pressure on me. It's just not for me. And you end up throwing your hands up in the air. Yeah. And I think guilt might be another one of those things that makes people tend to avoid things because it's essentially a negative emotion. Um, and that, that, those emotional components is something that I think we really need to take more stock of when we're designing interventions. Um, that, you know, it doesn't come into attitudes, your intentions, your how confident you are. We really need to also think about how people feel. And we also have to be aware of our own implicit bias in we're fully bought in. I yeah. love exercise. I love what it does for me mentally, physically. I believe in its outcomes for me. But that's not the same. And I can't provide a blanket statement for Everyone who gets cancer should exercise because they will get stronger, get bigger, get more muscular, get fitter, all that stuff. Because the evidence isn't there. And, and a lot of people have incredible difficulty adopting and maintaining exercise, particularly when they've got all this other shit going on in their lives. And the financial aspect of, of cancer treatment, as you said, and the emotional burden of it. I think if we are more realistic with our expectations of what exercise might do for them, by by reframing their expectations of what they can get out of it, that may result in, again, that bigger picture, better experience. Yeah, and I, I think having, being able, it just allows us to be able to relate to people more. And it, by, I think one of the other things that I think is a limitation at the moment is that we, we're fixated on exercise so that we view it in, in a bit of a vacuum. And so, like, really understanding people's broader life priorities and what their lives look like and that that should be a part of what we think about when we go on and design an intervention because people don't live in a vacuum and actually your your self-control resources are not like specific to different tasks that you do so the energy that you put into exercise is just in your general bucket of energy and if you're dealing with all sorts of other things you're probably going to have less capacity to focus on that and that can you know replenish and recover throughout the day but we sort of need to be mindful of that as well that you know people are coping and especially if people are still at work if they're carers a lot of people are carers for their partner in the elderly yeah there's a lot to really take in to be holistic yeah and it's also understanding that for the most part our outcomes are irrelevant to their life no one cares about their timed up and go we need to be able to, to kind of reflect with them on, are you able to walk up the stairs with a basket of laundry? How's that going for you? You know, you're fishing. Can you pull fish out of water? Is that getting easier for you? Finding ways to make the improvements that we're looking for relevant to their life to kind of get them to, to, to try and see um, benefits that may not be apparent to them. Yeah, and it, it might be functional things. It might also be social things. So if people are looking for so some of the things i think about group exercise especially the um some of the the prostate cancer specific programs is this information sharing among men and getting to kind of have that extra kind of comparator about their care but getting to have that social aspect as well um but ultimately that we will need to have different types of programs so that they can fit in 
the multitude of life experiences that people have. It's something I've been thinking of a lot lately as it relates to um, kind of cultural aspects of of individuals participating in this work because uh, my training in behavior, behavioral research was in the States where we had a lot of um, kind of higher SES men who were fairly emotionally intuitive and could sit around the table and, and share um, their challenges and how that impacted them personally and all that type of stuff. And, you know, if I were to go back to, to Dublin, Ireland and, and my specific area of town where it's lower SES, a lot of working class people and the, the Irish cultures as a whole, um, you almost have to trick men into talking about their feelings and how that relates to them. So there, I think there's some really interesting hidden challenges when you're reading um, the literature on behavior change and how to actually take that into context into to your environment. Yeah, definitely. And one of the problems is, is that, so we have a taxonomy that we can use to label the techniques that we have used and that's to try and standardize that language. But something like prompt goal setting, I mean, you can imagine that that could be done 110 ways and that could have 110 different outcomes. And so we can get some broad stroke ideas around the types of techniques that work by collating the literature. But that fine grain information around, you know, why did it work there and not there has probably got a lot to do with either the attributes of how it was done, but also the difference in population that it was done with. And so there's all these interactions that make it incredibly difficult to, um, but we are, we are getting somewhere, I think. So with, with your work in technology and kind of e-health, what do you think the kind of next steps in that space is and, and perhaps the strengths and limitations of, of using technology in that space and maybe as it relates to older populations? I'll start with the easy part first, which I think is the strengths and the weaknesses of um, the population, in older populations. Neil is writing down my questions. They're so yes. elaborate. Three two-part <laughs> questions. <laughs> so the strengths and limitations of technology in older populations. Look, I think partly we do really need to be mindful of accessibility. So digital health is often pitched as being accessible um, and it's certainly becoming ubiquitous. So I think it's above 90% of people now do have access to the internet, which is pretty good. I am concerned about, so a lot of online services, not just health services, but every day to day activities. I am concerned about um, excluding people of the population, especially elderly, that if you need to, you know, contact your bank, you need to do this on your app or on your online form. Um, I think that is a concern. Um, I think that there's a lot of potential in um, saving resources, though, so that you can have more steps care models. So self-management, we just cannot sustain, as an ageing population, we cannot sustain the amount of use in our hospital system, in our healthcare system. But I do think that for technology to be, to have a real impact, it really needs to be linked to those health services instead of sort of floating around in the ether. Um, because one, I've done some research around, say, how men with prostate cancer search the internet, what sort of information they're going to find. Um, and it, there's a lot of rubbish and there's some not good searching. So instead of searching, for example, 70-year-old man, prostate cancer, exercise, rehab. Um, you might just search exercise. Um, so it really is going to impact on the relevance of the what, what you're going to find. And obviously Google's sort of tracking other things you search, so it would be a bit more relevant. But um, there are concerns with people being able to even link in with good health services online on their own, um, especially if they're not very experienced on the internet. So, so that will obviously change over time. Um, but there are benefits and a surprising number of older people are actually engaged with either a desktop computer or a laptop now, um, especially if you're talking about people in their 60s over, compared to people in their 90s. But even in the upper age range, there are people using it and it's going to only get bigger. So I think that um, there are clear gaps, but it's, it doesn't preclude using it in those older populations. In fact, there's a fair few studies that show 
um, that the uptake among those at least who participate in the research is quite good and the interventions can be effective. With, with the, there was a really great overview of the strengths and limitations of technology. With, with the future research and how quickly technology evolves, what are the challenges in, in, in if you're trying to capture, say, efficacy of a specific app and that takes six years from inception to publication, how do you think that that kind of relationship is going to evolve over time? Yeah, it's a, it is a major issue. The fact that the pace of technological growth is going far quicker than we can conduct the sort of clinical trials that are expected. Um, there's a lot of discussion in the field at the moment about how sluggish, say, the RCT is. Um, and your technology is often redundant so by the time that that study is done. But so there's a couple of points. One is that focusing more on general principles is useful than specific products for behavior, behavioral science. Um, focusing on existing products, so there are a lot of commercial products that we can do research with. Um, the upkeep of products is also really expensive. So if somebody else is, you know, trying to have that partnership even um, to have input and behavioral science input into a company is probably going to be much more sustainable. But I'm a real fan of um, the work by Linda Collins um, and Susan Murphy as well. So um, American-based teams have been doing work around optimising behavioural interventions and it's really applicable to the digital health space. And it sort of acknowledges that what we create is generally a package and we don't, it, there's a lot of redundancies and so they're trying to advocate for a much more engineering-inspired approach and using designs like factorial experiments where we can start to see the main effects of different techniques. So, for example, of tracking your steps with a Fitbit, might be one technique included, um, having a call from an exercise professional might be another technique and you might have, say, up to eight techniques that you're testing and then you can look at the main effects of those and you, so it might end up being like a 32 condition trial but you have the same number of participants as you do for a normal RCT. But you actually can see if, the, if those individual techniques have an impact and more importantly you can actually look at interactions between those techniques and so you can try and find the most efficient package say with some set criteria. So I might say I want the... the the package of techniques that cost $500 for the biggest effect. And so that's really, if we can do those sort of trials, we'll really fast track the development of packages that are much more refined than if you say, do an RCT, say you find that it works, that's great, but you don't know if you can take anything out, if that will change the effect, and then you don't have an evidence-based program anymore. Or if it doesn't work, even if you have assessed before and I said measure the things you want to change and see if they change, if it doesn't change, you don't really know uh, what might change if you put something else in place. So the cool thing about the factorial study is that you can try different techniques at the same time. Let's step back out of it and, and speak in sweeping generalizations. Mm-hmm. In, in understanding the, the limitations of the research um, and the need for indiv- individualization, what do you think are some important core elements that, that people, particularly who aren't in verse, well-versed in this space, can take away, you know, maybe in terms of reinforcing certain principles of, of behavior change and self-efficacy and all that stuff? Number one principle is education is often necessary but not sufficient to cause behaviour change. That getting people to adopt a behaviour often requires different strategies and things to consider than getting people to maintain a behaviour. And that to get people to maintain a behaviour, the type of motivation they have is really important. And so things that are much more based on that they do it because they enjoy it or because they really value what they're getting from it is going to lead to longer changes than if they're doing it because they feel guilty or because their doctor said they should or because their partner or somebody else said they should. Um, and that ideally you want to be setting people up to for success. So that, that means having a good mix between 
what the challenge is and what their skills are so that you're getting that kind of optimum kind of enjoyment from what you're doing. I had one other really great point that I have forgotten. It's gone forever. I was, I was on a roll. You were, you were, like my head got progressively more aggressive with my nodding. <laughs> I was like, that was a brilliant overview. If, if it comes to you, give me a shout before we finish this, but what are you most excited about moving forward with, with your research specifically or, or kind of the broader behavior change world? So um, I'm the chair of an E&M Health Special Interest Group out of the International Society of Behaviour, Nutrition and Physical Activity. Um, so I'm really excited about that because our mission is really to kind of continue these sorts of discussions and really push um, digital behaviour change intervention research for physical activity and diet-based research. Um, well, the project I'm most excited about that I'm working at the moment is the one on um, metastatic prostate cancer and, and trying to deliver both tailored behaviour change and tailored exercise prescription um, using technology to cancer survivors. Um, and I, I have a couple of different projects that I'm trying to do that in different ways to sort of start developing models of care that um, can be in addition to what is already happening in clinic in the hospital if they do have a face-to-face program. So what does that look like then? Are, are these men uh, receiving an app that's specific to them and they're, they're kind of going through it and selecting um, things related to them that will come up with a, a behavior change and exercise plan? Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's based partly on... Um, the idea that people are more likely to stick to a program if they have a little bit more autonomy and if they um, have a, if they feel quite competent. So we've been really mindful of that. Um, it, it, the website can, is a web-based program. It can stand alone. It's designed for people to um, use with TheraBands, but also they can uh, use the information at a local gym or something like that. Um, but basically there are different elements to the website. So you can click on a button to generate your exercise plan and that will step you through that over eight weeks. And it it, um, allows for progression. So you can update where you're up to and it will progress your exercises. Um, But there's also um, information that gives you tailored behavior change. So it assesses some of the things that we've talked about. It looks at how automatic your behavior is to try and establish whether or not you have a habit. And if you don't, it gives you guidance around that. It looks at the type of motivation you have so that if you're motivated by guilt, it tries to say, hey, um, that's not in your best interest. Here are some things that you could do to try and enjoy exercise more. That would be a better motivator for you. Um, And it draws on evidence like there's research published recently around using music to kind of before you exercise and during exercise and um, affect regulated exercise. So even though we prescribe an intensity and exercise prescription part, Um, For people who are reporting that they're primarily driven by more extrinsic factors, they'll get things like, um, how about you spend some time exercising at the level where it feels good and see how that works for you. So the behaviour change stuff is really there to try and help people do their program in a way that they're more likely to stick to it. So we've done some lab-based testing of that just to make sure that it's usable and safe um, with about 11 men. And now we're about to start a um, RCT. Well, how can people contact you if they're interested in referring to or participating in that type of RCT? So the, there's a fantastic PhD student working on the project. Uh, she's an exercise physiologist and her name's Holly Evans. Um, so it would be to email Holly, Holly Evans, holly.evans at adelaide.edu.au, I think, or me. Very Googleable. <laughs> Very Googleable, yeah. <laughs> so for people who are interested in your specific work and, and what you're up to, where can people find you and get in contact? Uh, so my, I have a Melbourne Uni webpage, uh, Camille.short. I also have LinkedIn, Twitter, actually. I'm on Twitter quite a lot. So that's just Camille Short underscore AU, I think. You're fairly Googleable as well. I had yeah. A, yeah, yeah. So try this morning before we got on here um listen thanks so much um for for your chat and also your your research in this space i think it's really interesting and um i look forward to keeping up with you as you're moving forward 
Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.